HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This special program was brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the food policy issues that shape our collective experience of growing, buying, and eating food. We are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. And I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Later on today's show, I will be talking to Claire Fox of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council and Sabrina Berenberg of New York City's Public Health Solutions about getting more healthy food into the neighborhoods that need it most. But first, we're going to turn to the Policy Roundtable, where we get behind recent food headlines to make sense of the news with some leading food policy thinkers. Let me introduce the folks that we have joining us today. First, Paula Daniels, who is Senior Fellow on Food Systems, Water, and Climate at the Office of Governor Jerry Brown and the founder of the LA Food Policy Council. She's calling us from Los Angeles. We also have Kathy Nonis, who is an expert on obesity and diet-related disease and a senior advisor at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And finally, joining us is Dennis Stearns. Dennis has written and taught about food policy extensively, and he's a founding partner of Marler Clark, a leading food safety law firm. He's joining us from Seattle. Hello to you all, and thanks for joining again on Heritage Radio Network. Hello. Hello. Hi. I'm glad to have you all back on the show. We are going to start today with a story on urban agriculture. San Francisco will be the first city in the nation to provide tax incentives to owners of vacant lots who permit their land to be used for urban farming for a minimum of five years. The tax incentive that the city is offering is to revalue the empty lots at the cost per acre farmland, which is currently approximately 12500 per acre. That means that it can result in a huge tax bill discount since empty lots in San Francisco can often be valued for over $1 million. City officials hope that this means more lot owners will decide to turn over their empty lots to urban farming. 
So this is a pretty significant policy victory for proponents of urban agriculture. Once seen as more of a marginal activity, cities have begun to embrace urban ag with, a serious, with serious policy proposals to back up their interest, and I see this as one example. Dennis, is this something that you see as the start of a potential trend? Yeah, it's definitely a start of a trend, especially with regard to the use of tax incentives, which is relatively novel. But it's also a real continuation of a trend with regard to urban agriculture, which has really, I think, been deemed important for several decades. I mean, here in Seattle, the community garden program is called Pea Patches, and that was started in 1973. The, the P stands for the Picardo family farm, which was the last remaining farm still in the city of Seattle in 1973, and that's when the first community garden you know, was started. So I think that, you know, urban agriculture remains something that people are not only increasingly thinking is important, but that is important to things like, you know, food security, sustainability, but I think most importantly, uh, community building. Um, you know, community uh, gardens are participatory, they're integrated in the system, uh, and so they just throw off all sorts of positive benefits, which I think are to be lauded. It's true, and some have thought that that's actually one of the reasons policy has been a little bit slow to recognize the benefits of urban agriculture is because the benefits uh, can be so cross-cutting. Yet, um, it's not all a, a bed of roses in terms of this proposal. There's been some pushback, and some of the concern is that in a city with such a huge need for affordable housing development, it can't afford to be prioritizing community gardens over development. This is certainly a typical tension with urban ag and something that's come up here in New York. And I'm wondering, Paula, if you have any thoughts on how that has played out in other settings. Yeah, well, first I want to say I do agree with what Dennis said about how the value of community gardens urban agriculture, it has a, a lot more value than production value. I think some are skeptical about how much we can actually feed people through urban agriculture, and that's not really, that's uh, only part of the value of it. As Dennis said, there's a lot of a lot of other values, including when people are able to grow their own food, they have a different relationship to it, and, and I think um, eat differently. You know, so particularly in lower-income communities, it has an important value from that standpoint. But what we've seen, we had sort of an infamous example in Los Angeles, which was the South L.A. Uh, gardens um, that were, and it sort of plays out in the same way that AB 551 points to, which is it was temporary. You know, it was uh, allowed uh, an allowed use by the landlord at the time, and it was right in front of the food bank in L.A. And so these urban uh, agriculture folks set up and were growing uh, fairly productively for, for quite some time, but then the landlord decided he wanted to have a different use of the property and became quite a cause for lab. I don't know if you all heard about the time when Daryl Hanna was um, camping out in a tree in L.A., but that was that example. No. So, Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was there, um, and I, you know, I was there because well, so many of us were trying to support the you know, the continuation of those folks being able to farm. It was 40 acres. It was really important, and in a very distressed part of Los Angeles. So the mayor, this is the very first thing that happened when we uh, were in the mayor's office in Los Angeles in 2005, and we tried to raise the money to buy the property so that people could continue to um, farm there. But, you know, even though we raised, we had a huge campaign and raised the funds, the landlord would not sell even at his asking price, he refused to sell for that purpose. So one of the conflicts that comes into play here, because as I understand, maybe 551 is that, you know, you can temporarily allow this and you're going to get a tax incentive if you allow it. 
is a question of once people are there and they've started and they've become used to it and the community becomes used to it, what happens if the landlord changes um, his or her mind about what they want to do with that property? So we have that example in L.A. So in some ways, what, I, what I'm hoping we can do is just use this as motivation to use more permanent types of structures. Like uh, in L.A., we have a lot of utility easements that have uh, land underneath them. And maybe and that's actually what we happened to do with the South L.A. gardeners. We moved some of them to a utility easement, so they're now gardening. Half of them are now gardening there, and it's more permanent. It's a it's an easement that's granted to them, and there's no likely change of use. So where, so where essentially there would be no no opportunity to ever build on that site, and so it's a good place right. for urban ag use. Right. So it's permanent because you sort of want this to be built into the permanent fabric of the community. I think there's such value to it. So that was where we started putting our attention is to try to find places where. You could build community gardens and have it be durable and not temporary. And that's, that's why I think that ultimately where this needs to go is, is a look at zoning regulations. I mean, right. requiring developers. Right now, if you want to you know, build something, you have to put in lights and sidewalks, et cetera. And, and zoning laws could be amended to require, like, okay, if you're going to build this big development, that you need to build community gardens and urban agriculture as part of the infrastructure. Right. Yeah, I like that. We, we actually, in New York City, used zoning incentives uh, for the supermarket work, and we've also been trying to get more supermarkets, like so many other jurisdictions, into poorer neighborhoods, but instead of just using tax incentives, we also included zoning incentives, parking issues, how tall a building could be, things like that, if they put a supermarket in. So I think we'll all be watching to see how this does play out in San Francisco, and particularly in five years, when, um, which is the amount of time that landowners are required to allow the uses if, if there is a, an issue when they try and take them back for development. Um, and I'm sure there'll be lots of policy innovation between now and then as well. But I do want to turn to our second story for the day, which is about calorie labeling on menus. Uh, most Americans are unaware of the FDA's standard calorie budget that's used in nutrition labels. The budget reflects the agency's recommended intake for many adults, which is crucial for consumers to keep in mind as they're translating those labels. But a Johns Hopkins study recently found that many consumers lacked an understanding of the 2,000 calorie target and that, nutri that nutrition labels are based on. So the FDA has also recently proposed a new, new menu labeling regulations, which will soon require that chain restaurants with 20 or more locations list calorie counts on menus, menu boards, and drive through displays. The study suggests that these calorie counts are only useful if people understand that they are based on the 2,000 calorie diet mark and if they're able to calculate their own needs, extrapolating from that. So, Kathy, you worked on the New York City menu labeling policy that was a forerunner of the FDA's move. Why do you think the FDA has put this emphasis on calorie labeling without requiring or supporting more information about the 2,000-calorie-a-day standard? Well, I think um, New York City was the first jurisdiction to regulate it, um, and we didn't have an anchor statement such as that, you know, recommended daily caloric intake for an average adult is 2,000 calories. Uh, we did have a large-scale subway campaign called Read Them Before You Eat Them, and that included that 2,000 calories is what the average adult should eat. But we didn't have it on our menu boards. The reason why is we thought that it would be too difficult for people to figure out what percentage of their calories they were ordering and um, when they ordered a 600-calorie meal, and it would be much easier for people to compare, let's say, an 800-calorie 
hamburger combo versus a 600-calorie hamburger combo. Since then, with a tremendous amount of evaluation post this regulation, it's, you know, um, Kelly Brownell and others did a study that became clear that there needs to be some sort of anchoring statement as well as the calories posted. So the anchoring is not just because some people don't know how many calories they should eat, actually. Um, but in the Brownell study, they showed that people paid more attention to what they ate at the next meal if they um, had an anchoring statement. So in other words, if they took the 600-calorie hamburger instead of the 800-calorie hamburger, they felt like they were doing great stuff so they could eat more at the next meal. But with an anchoring statement, it helped put that kind of into more of a rational decision. The FDA has been pretty clear that um, they also believe there should be some sort of anchoring statement, and I believe that they've been kind of tossing about, um, you know, some sort of succinct statement that not only concerned the daily intake, but because they're a governmental body, they really also have to say that there's a caveat that individuals may vary. Um, Right, as we all know from personal experience. But I want to ask, as we're picturing consumers doing these calculations in their head, do we think the right answer really is doing more education on calories? Uh, Paula, you know, turning to you, would you think it would just be better for people to help people focus on eating more whole foods, whole grains, fruits and vegetables, and so on, or you know, are calorie calculators and calorie calculations the way to a healthier America? You know, I think that the feedback loop that you get into, the feedback mechanism of counting calories is actually pretty helpful. I, uh, I th- it seems to me there's been a lot of, a fair amount of education about what types of calories, what types of food to take in, and there's progress made on that at the school food level and otherwise. But a feedback um, loop is really helpful. I, I happen to be wearing a Fitbit at the moment, which, <laughs> you know, if you really do decide to stick with it, you, you plug in the calories that you've eaten. and Honestly, as aware as I always have been about what amount of calories are in certain types of food and um, what, what kind of foods to eat, like whole foods, etc., it's surprising when you really break it down how many calories are in different types of things, like bread and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I think having the overall calorie target and having information to help you calibrate will be a value. And uh, you know, I think you see a lot of feedback mechanisms coming up in other ways that really help people understand their consumption of various things energy. Uh, One day we'll be able to measure water, but we'll even have the Apple Watch coming out soon, which will help you monitor these things. The question is how many people will be able to access those pieces of feedback information, but I think having a start by having it available um, in labels is, is valuable. Great. Well, lots of interesting ideas there about data at the micro level and the use of data for personal use. Um, But we'll have to leave it at that. So Paula, Kathy, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us again today. We are going to take a short break now and we'll be back with a conversation about what it really means to make healthy food accessible with two people who know how to do it, Sabrina Berenberg and Claire Fox. Something I've been through before 
not again If our life depend on it So political Analytical Intellectual Ineffectual Breed southern pretender Sister mother Hide your children Ain't you wearing another pillow Sleep on it A man in the white shoes Drinking the cheap food Drinking the cheap food Drinking the This special program was brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. This is Clay Gordon of thechocolatelife.com, and you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back, everyone. I am incredibly glad to introduce two people that I am lucky to know and have worked with. First, Sabrina Berenberg, who's here with me in the studio. She is currently the Senior Director of Food and Nutrition Programs with Public Health Solutions and previously directed food access programs at the New York City Department of Health. A force for innovation, Sabrina was instrumental in the development, launch, and growth of several of New York City's most replicated programs to make healthy foods more accessible, including the Health Bucks Program and the Shop Healthy Program. And we also have Claire Fox, who, in addition to being the Director of Policy and Innovation for the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, also directs the Healthy Neighborhood Market Network, an initiative to bring business and leadership development opportunities and consulting to neighborhood markets in low-income communities who wish to sell more fresh and healthy food. In 2011, Claire also co-created the Community Market Conversion Program at the Community Redevelopment Agency of the City of Los Angeles. And Claire is calling from Los Angeles. So welcome to you both. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Kim. Great to have you. So I want to start off with um, the the topic that we're focusing on today, the idea of healthy retail access. When people hear about the need for improved healthy food access, there are a lot of components to that. It can be in school food. It can be in pantries. It can be in our nutrition programs. But Claire, what does healthy retail access refer to, and why is that important? Healthy retail access refers to the fact that, unfortunately, um, across the country and urban areas and rural areas as well, many low-income neighborhoods, many communities of color don't have quality food retail services, and they're available, readily available in their communities. So perhaps there are some corner stores and neighborhood markets, but the quality of the 
of the products are, are not nutritionally sound um, or, um, you know, perhaps there's some restaurants, but again, they could be fast food. What we tend to see in areas that folks describe as either a food desert or a food swamp and I prefer to actually just describe what the conditions are, that they're, they're communities that lack um, options in terms of healthy food, is a dearth of supermarkets and grocery stores, a dearth of farmers' markets. Um, but what you do see is sort of an over-allocation of, of liquor stores, convenience stores, um, and fast food. And so when we talk about access to healthy food, as you mentioned, there's multiple strategies. And one of the ways that I think Sabrina and I have focused our energies is by looking at the retail environment, the commercial and business environment, and seeing how we could support uh, healthy food businesses to thrive in areas where th- we need those options. Great. So, Sabrina, you now oversee a number of WIC programs, uh, which is the Women, Infants, and Children's Program in New York City, in which healthy retail plays an important role. Can you talk about how the retail environment affects the families that are using WIC? Sure. And it's an interesting convergence to think of the WIC program, which includes nutrition education, uh, nutrition support for families, and also supplemental benefits to actually make healthier foods more affordable for families. So I think it's really important when we're talking about food retail access to think about all the different facets of access. So there's convenience, there's affordability, there's attractability, there's... um, there's inventory, there's merchandising. So it's not just having things available, but it's making sure that they're affordable. It's making sure that people can see them. It's making sure that they're marketed to the population appropriately. And so WIC is great because it gives people the actual dollars they need to purchase healthier foods. And it also requires that any store that accepts WIC has to stock these items. So it means automatically that there's increased access to healthy foods in the neighborhood if there are WIC stores. Um, But the issue still remains about... um, merchandising, making sure that those products are really easy to find, making sure that they're attractive, and making sure also that people know how to use them and how to incorporate them into their diets, how to cook them, how to prepare them, especially because many of these families are working not only with a a small budget, but also with minimal time, working multiple jobs, uh, looking for the convenience of fast and processed foods, but knowing that it's healthier to prepare yourself. So all of those things really need to be combined together when we're addressing access. And what were some of the ways that New York City or New York City has tried to help address that? Well, in, in general, in the past, the health department has really focused on addressing all of those components and also making sure to address it wherever people shop. So like Claire, Claire mentioned, we're focusing, we focus on supermarkets, on, on bodegas or corner stores, on farmer's markets, on mobile food vending, recognizing that people go to different types of retail outlets for different things, and, and also making sure that we're reducing the barriers as much as possible. So for example, the Health Bucks program is a financial incentive to encourage people to shop at farmer's markets, a place where... Some people might argue it's more expensive than other places, and in order to encourage low-income people to shop there, we need to be able to to, to lower the, the price of the produce. So by providing health bucks to people or giving them a $2 coupon um, to really offset the price difference that they might encounter at a farmer's market. Shop Healthy really focuses on corner stores and supermarkets and making sure that if the health that the stores know how to stock healthier foods and then also to promote them because it's not enough, like I said, to have it in the store. They have to be visible. They have to be marketed. And the healthy foods are up against the big corporations that put billions of dollars into slotting fees and shelf talkers and and buying up the whole front door of the bodega so that 
the whole thing is plastered with unhealthy ads and it's impossible to get anything else in there. I mean, uh, the you know banana lobby is a really hard time fighting against the Frito-Lay lobby. So, so before, I want to ask Claire a question, but you have to explain what a shelf talker is. Oh, <laughs> so um, yeah, now I'm, I'm getting into the business lingo of these stores. But so a shelf talker is just... Um, the, the item that, that hangs down from the shelf that identifies the product. So it's something that you can use just for price, but in general it's also a way to promote the product. So, um, you know, these these prof, for-profit companies have been using things like that all the time. And slotting fees are, are basically when the, the company pays um, – for a certain area of the store. So they might actually pay the store to use the aisle or pay the store to use the eye-level shelving to make sure that their products are at the place where people are most likely to buy them. And so because of that, the Fruit Loops are at eye level and the Whole Grain Cheerios might be at the bottom shelf um, where the kids are less likely to see it and ask for it. Right. So there's a reason that the end of shopping aisles are often... A lot of processed foods. (laughs) Right. So, Claire, uh, I want to ask you, you've done a lot of work with store owners, as has Sabrina. I want to ask you, what are some of the challenges that you've uh, seen store owners encounter? Well, one of the biggest challenges that uh, store owners that we're working with uh, face is that they don't have a lot of great uh, vendor options and distribution options for procuring healthy food products. And that's because the, the... the size of the volume of their orders is typically too small um, for a distributor to actually deliver to their store or even to break their cases into that small amount. Um, And as Sabrina mentioned, you know, there's other companies who, for example, chips companies, let's just say, or beer companies, that that's part of their business model to do that direct service delivery where they'll show up to the store, they'll stock it, they'll price it, they make it really easy for the store owner. So in a way, there's a little bit of an expectation sometimes on the part of the store owner that, hey, why can't I get that for the produce too? And unfortunately, at this stage... um, in the distribution industry, there isn't quite that, that business model that's figured out how to do that. And so one of the things we have to do is work with some of the cash and carries or, you know, right now we're working to aggregate the purchasing power of small store owners so that they can interface with a larger distributor who would be willing, you know, through their collective purchasing power to interface with them and to, to fulfill those orders and do distribution. And another issue is that they just, um, you know, managing perishable goods, for a lot of them it's new. Um, you can lose a lot of money if you're working with a perishable good and don't know how to extend its shelf life and don't know how to necessarily market it and, and move it off the shelf. It's very very, very different kind of product than they're used to working with. Um, typically, they're working with, you know, commercially packaged goods that can sit there for months. So part of it is training and education and empowering them to know how to work with that product. But I think part of what you were talking about goes to what's a little bit of a chicken and egg issue or what some people raise as a chicken and egg issue with this challenge. Uh, there's, there's often a lot of skepticism about even the existence of food deserts or food swamps. Um, and, and, I, and one of the underlying questions that's raised is how why would why don't market forces take care of this issue if there's a demand for healthy foods and and even more so if there isn't an adequate demand for healthy foods then how will the types of interventions that these programs are pursuing be sustainable ultimately so how would you both respond to those kinds of questions I think that's a really good point. I was going to, you know, mention the supply and demand um, cycle is really important here, but I think it's a little simplistic for people to think that by su- providing the supply, it's automatically going to change this the demand curve. It's a this is a long process. It's 
there's been many, many years of people being bombarded with marketing and marketing ploys and tactics from these for-profit companies, um, you know, encouraging them to take care of your kid and, and, you know, feed them, you know, a Coke. It'll, it'll make them happy and it'll make you happy. It'll make you a better mother. I mean, it's years and years of this marketing that's been going on. It's also very difficult, even if people want to eat healthy, to encourage people that it's worth the extra money, it's worth the extra time. It's not going to happen overnight. So, um, you know, we can't just put the healthier foods in the store and expect all of a sudden people to buy them, but we also, um, you know, we have we, can, we have to know that this is a long-term process. It's going to involve education. It's going to involve support. It's going to involve financial incentives. It's going to, um, you know, the more people, you know, I'm talking from a WIC perspective, if the more people who are eligible for WIC that can get enrolled in the program, then all of a sudden they have these checks that are for specific foods, and then at WIC we really help them learn how to, you know, prepare them and feed them to their families. And, you know, it's a long-term process. So I think it's a difficult thing for anyone to, to uh, think of a program as long-term. Um, but I think it's we're all working together on it. And in the past 5, 10 years, programs like Shop Healthy and the, the things that Claire's been working on have been prolifer- proliferating across the country. And I think we're moving in the right direction. But, you know, it's a hard sell in the end, like a French fries or an apple. Even if it's, even if it's affordable in there, it's still, you know, it's a, it's a difficult push. So, Claire, I want to get your thoughts on that and also ask you to talk a little bit more about how the Healthy Retail Network is supporting store owners. Sure. My thoughts on the question of um, demand is I, I love when this comes up because here in Los Angeles we actually have some figures now to, to understand grocery retail leakage. A couple years ago a firm called Social Compact did a report where they, they were able to actually quantify that $113 million at least um, in grocery retail expenditures leave South Los Angeles and East Los Angeles, which are two areas in L.A. that are widely considered to be food deserts. So we know there's demand and that it's actually leaving neighborhoods. Um, that said, I think to Sabrina's point, you know, we know there's demand in the aggregate, but what, how does it get translated to, on a neighborhood level um, when there's been really generations of, you know, patterns in terms of community development and in terms of marketing and consumer behavior on a store-level environment that are shaping people's choices. And so I agree that it's going to be an iterative process as we start to sort of, you know, create community transformation on a neighborhood level and then redirect and reorient those purchasing patterns that people have developed over many, many years. And in terms of the way that we support store owners through our initiative, the Healthy Neighborhood Market Network, we do that by providing ongoing free technical assistance um, focused on business and leadership development. So our, our goal and our contribution in all of this is to really empower the store owners to feel and know themselves as health champs in their community and that they're able to really operationalize healthy food into their business and make money doing so. So we do uh, multilingual trainings. We bring together partners from food industry, distributors, marketing specialists, people who focus on branding and procurement, as well as some of our government and nonprofit partners. And the the goal here is, is to be a resource network so that if some of these stores are going through corner store conversion projects, um, in partnership with organizations, or if they just want to do it on the, their own, they know that they have an ongoing support system there uh, that can follow up with them, that can put together a team of resource providers to help them think through what their unique challenges and opportunities are. And before we wrap up, I want to hear from each of you what you would say success looks like in this context or an example of success that you can share. 
That's a great question. Um, what I was going to piggyback on what Claire said about empowerment, and I think empowering the store owners to feel like they're part of the solution is really important, and also empowering communities to feel like they're part of the solution. I think it's really easy to say, you know, my neighborhood doesn't have any healthy foods, there's nothing I can do. Um, but I think an example of success is when a community really takes hold of this concept and comes together and says, you know what, there's a bodega across the store street from my school, and all the kids are shopping there for their junk food. We as a school or as a community, we're going to go into that bodega and talk to them about how if you stock these healthier foods, we're going to purchase them from you. And then that in itself affects the supply and demand chain because the bodega will stock whatever people buy. And if there's a concerted community effort talking about we're going to all work together and we're actually going to support this store in making these changes. We're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to buy healthier things from you. Then the store gets a profit out of it and it's a continuous cycle. And I think that's how it has to happen. It has to come from the people who shop at the store and the store has to be willing to take that chance and then together they can move forward and and, and capitalize on that. And something I know that has actually happened in New York City. Yeah, but our Adoptive Bodega program is focused specifically on that, about empowering communities to adopt stores in their neighborhood and giving them to- tools to actually support Support the store and making those changes to the stores and doing it on their own. Great. And Claire, any thoughts on success before we wrap up? Yeah, I completely agree with what Sabrina said, and I would also add success can look like a store owner who moves in the direction of healthy food and then sees themselves growing. And one perfect example is a gentleman named Nelson Garcia, who we've worked with for the last year, a store owner in South L.A. And he's, you know, he went through a market makeover transformation. He's figuring out his unique brand around healthy food, focused on healthy snacks for young people in the neighborhood. And now he's talking about opening up more stores. He actually owns another store. He's going to convert it into this new business model that he's created. So I think that's, I mean, that's the future, right, is that they can see themselves not just doing this, but growing and thriving and doing it. Um, That's success. And that will have to bring us to a close for this episode of Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank all of our guests and also Nisha Vida for her help in putting the show together. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening